My name is Mark Shields. I, I live in Washington, D.C. right now, but I'm actually a, a native of Chicago. So I listen to WAMU, but WBEZ is my home NPR affiliate. Mark Shields listens to a ton of NPR shows, including this one. But Mark's developed a routine with one show in particular. I have been known to spend an evening sipping a bottle of red wine and, and doing a Terry Gross interview in my bathtub. Terry Bear and I like to work some things out. <laughs> Clearly, Mark loves NPR. But there's one thing about public media that he hates. Oh my God, we are not listening. Seven straight days, let's be honest, 10 straight days. It's called Pledge Week. I am owed a week and I get 10 days of like guilt. I'm Irish Catholic from Chicago. Like I understand guilt in a deep way. Mark admits you can only complain about pledge drives on NPR stations if you're actually a donor. If you're not giving, then you're just a crank. But if you're an actual donor, your complaining means more. And that is democracy. Trust Mark, give to your local station, and then complain all you want. You know, NPR's work and our work on this show right here, it relies on listener support. Listener support of member stations and communities all over the country. Support those stations and this show. Go to donate.npr.org slash Sam. Go donate right now, and if you use that link, they'll know that I sent you there. Okay, go ahead and uh, listen to this episode now without any guilt. Listeners, this episode contains very frank discussions about race, and that conversation includes some racial slurs, so perhaps not the best for kids. All right, enjoy. So a little earlier this year, I interviewed comedian and Saturday Night Live star Bowen Yang. And Bowen and I talked a lot about race and representation. And in that chat, Bowen mentioned this book on race that he loved. So my editor and I read that book. And then I interviewed the author. Her name is Kathy Park Hong. And she is a poet. But that book Bowen mentioned, Kathy's latest book, it is not a book of poetry. And it was inspired... Not by a poet, but by a comedian. I think when I had really started working on this book, it was the first time I saw Richard Pryor's Live in Concert. Yeah, Richard Pryor. Live in Concert is his legendary 1979 comedy special. You ever notice how nice white people get when there's a bunch of niggas around? When I saw uh, Live in Concert, I was just completely stirred. Yeah. You know, it was a revelation. Yeah, yeah. he's really good. He's <laughs> really good. But Kathy says she loved how Richard Pryor could talk about race without any guardrails. And it made her wonder. How come there aren't Asian Americans who write about their racialized experience the way uh, Richard Pryor talks about it, with that kind mm. of rawness and honesty and brutality. So Kathy, an Asian American, she went on this quest to capture that rawness and honesty. And ultimately, Richard Pryor's comedy, it didn't just inspire Kathy's latest book. It also, for a little bit, it turned Kathy into a stand-up comic herself. I thought it would be a kind of conceptual stunt. I would be invited to do a poetry reading, but instead of doing a poetry reading, I would just do a little comedy routine instead. Kathy told me one of those jokes. And uh, listeners, it was so raunchy, we cannot actually repeat it on this public radio show. But I did ask Kathy if she thought that joke, her jokes, were any good. They were all horrible. They were really, really bad. So bad that they stopped her audiences cold. They looked at me as if I, like, 
pissed my pants. They're horrified. I mean, <laughs> they're just so embarrassed for me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think... You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders. And today, Kathy Park Hong will show us why she is better at writing books than telling jokes. We'll discuss her latest work, Minor Feelings. That book came out in February of this year. And as 2020 comes to a close, it couldn't be more timely. This book, Minor Feelings, it is all about race and the quiet, often painful feelings tied to it. In this year of racial reckoning, a lot of those quiet feelings, they've gotten loud. And Kathy says that is probably a good thing. Stay with us. More from Kathy on minor feelings and race in 2020 with no bad jokes. I promise. This message comes from NPR sponsor Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. You're a great multitasker, but be careful. Playing Best Fiends while making lunch can lead to unfortunate sandwiches. Peanut butter and mayo, anyone? So when lunchtime is at stake, maybe that next level can wait. But if you can't help yourself, well, hopefully PB&M is an acquired taste. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Since the 1980s, hip-hop and America's prisons have grown side by side. And we're going to investigate this connection to see how it lifts us up and holds us down. Hip-hop is talking about what we live, trying to live the American dream, failing at the American dream. I'm Sydney Madden. I'm Rodney Carmichael. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. All right, before we start this conversation, we should define minor feelings. Kathy, go ahead. It's these range of kind of negative emotions like shame or paranoia or melancholia that a lot of Asian Americans feel growing up in the U.S. It's not just Asian Americans, you know, it could also be other people of color, not just because they feel different in this country, but also because their reality that their living is not recognized by the dominant society. Basically, all the weird and often bad ways people of color experience race. The stuff that's always there and the stuff that we are often reluctant to actually talk about. Kathy says for years, she was reluctant to write about her own personal minor feelings because she knew a lot of white people were reading. And in the book, she describes having to get over that. So that's where we start. On her audience, who it is, and how it affects what Kathy writes. Do you think you've, I don't know, either made peace or had some growth with this idea of the white audience, the white gaze, G-A-Z-E? You know, I think about this a lot as well. Like, my audience is mostly white. I work in public radio. Whether I'm not talking about race or I'm only talking about race, my audience is mostly white. And I don't, think I let that hold me back, but it's always there and I'm always thinking about it. I'm guessing that even with this book that you wrote, Minor Feelings, that a large chunk of folks that bought it are white. How have you, or how has, I guess, your perspective on who that audience is and how you speak to them perhaps changed since the stand-up comedy routines? Well, 
I think this goes back to Richard Pryor. Uh, you know, like when I was reading about Richard Pryor, uh, fans, scholars, anyone who's, I mean, a lot of white people found him hilarious, but then there were also black people who said they were just shocked. There was that quote unquote shock of recognition. They were like, oh my God, I can't believe he's like telling our private jokes to this yeah. white public, you the know? The family business. The yeah. family business, right? And <laughs> I, I think like from him and all the, also a lot of other writers and artists who I'm inspired by, I thought I'm really going to try as hard as I can to disregard the white gaze and try mm. to write. I can't even say try to write for Asians because there are so many different kinds of Asian Americans, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. it was almost, it was like, I wanted to, I had to think of specific people. I was like, I'm going to write to that um, Korean American student who came up to me and cried uh, after I gave a reading because she said she felt so alone and there was no one she could talk to. Mm. You know, I wanted to write to my daughter, who's now six, when she's an adult. It was almost like I was trying to have a conversation to other people that I knew. And in that way, I was writing to myself as well. And yes, there were a lot of white people who have bought the book. But actually, what has been incredibly gratifying is that there have been so many um, Asian Americans who have told me that they feel seen and that they've never had their experiences written down the way that I wrote it down. So it's, I realize that I don't need a white audience to make commercially successful book. I just need to write to my community and that community will respond. That is more important than anything else. That being said, it's not like I don't want white people to read my book. I want everyone... buy the book. Yeah, white people, please buy the book. I want everyone to read my book. (laughs) It's funny, whenever I mention the white gaze in an interview, Mm G-A-Z-E, someone writes me and says, I couldn't tell if you were talking about white gays or like white gay men (laughs) listeners we're talking about the white gays g-a-z-e but any white gays g-a-y-s listening thinking this refers to you it does i definitely i'm definitely writing it for white gays (laughs) (laughs) shout out to our white gays supporters we appreciate you yeah um you know you just mentioned having this fear that your book wouldn't speak to all Asian Americans. And you write that, you know, the Asian American experience is incredibly diverse. You know, this is a demographic group that has the largest variation in average income than any other demographic group in the country. And yet you write about how the identity of Asians in America is constantly, and this is the word you use, flattened. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that when you say it's flattened? Well, I would say that Asian Americans at this point, like, it's not even exactly, it's less an identity than more like a coalition of different uh, nationalities, classes, genders, sexualities, you know, um, a lot of people when they think Asian, they think Chinese, Mm. or they think model minority, they think like Chinese 
engineer who works in Silicon Valley or something, or they think of like an Asian news anchor woman or something. And when, you know, you have everyone from the Chinese American engineer who works in Silicon Valley to someone who's Hmong and who lives in Minnesota and who lives in the Mm -hmm. projects alongside other Black Americans, you know, so there's there's such a there's such a wide display of what Asian American is. And I have to be very clear about this. It's also the book is also about this country from Mm -hmm. the perspective of an Asian American woman. This book is not just about my identity, but it's also about the kind of changing demographic of this nation and the future of this nation and someone who's part of that and what someone from this growing demographic thinks about this country. You know, I say this in the book that in 2050, the majority will be people of color. Now, what does that mean? And and this is why I don't want just Asians to read this book. I want everyone to read this book. White gays, you can read it too. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, One of the parts of the book Uh that really, really opened my eyes Uh was the work you did to point out the racialized history of Asians in America. I think part of the flattening of Asian identity happens because most Americans don't know the history of Asians in this country. You know, before I read this book, I didn't know that Chinese people were brought into America to replace slaves in the plantation fields after the Civil War. I didn't know until I read you in the book writing that. I didn't know the way in which U.S. immigration policy kind of helped create the myth of Asians as a model minority Mm -hmm. until I read it in your book. You know, Mm -hmm. what does it say about all of us or about the American experiment that so much of this history of Asians in America is erased? I... There's a big reckoning that um, this country has to face. And Mm. so far, the history that I learned in when I was in high school was a history that was, I don't want to say jingoistic, but, you know, that did... You can say that. You can say that. All right. It was jingoistic. (laughs) Yeah. That completely whitewashed even slavery. I didn't even know even the beginning of how this country is founded on um, black death, slavery, dispossession. There was mm. no, there was no, um, I didn't learn about Asian Americans in high school. I didn't read Asian Americans in high school. It was, I didn't, I, I had to seek it out in college, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, a lot of Americans also don't know about Asian American activism, you know, mm-hmm. and how the term Asian American uh, was actually coined in the late 1960s by these UC Berkeley activists who were also inspired by the Black Power movement and uh, the Vietnam War protest movement. And that part of history can also just motivate Asians. You know, the, we don't come from a model minority history. But a lot yeah. of that is, a lot of that is erased, you know. And I think it's uh, what people don't know about model minority is that it's very much an engineered stereotype. Uh, this is the thing you blew my mind when you wrote that. Explain that for our listeners. Okay, so from the Chinese Exclusion Act, 
around the 1880s, uh, was the first race-based immigration ban that outlawed Chinese people from coming into the U.S. Uh, that had a lot to do with economic anxiety because white people thought Chinese people were taking their jobs. So they banned Chinese from coming into that country. That ban expanded uh, to all of Asia, you know, and then um, expanded to Africa and Latin America. And only a sliver of Northern Europeans were really allowed into the U.S. So basically what it was, was uh, segregation mm -hmm. on a global scale so that the U.S. would remain 80% white and the 20% were like uh, black and other minorities. In 1965, there was an act called the Hart-Seller Law. This was a law passed by Lyndon Johnson, which actually lifted that immigration ban, right? Mm. And the reason why he had that, uh, lifted that ban in the first place was part of it was because of the civil rights movement. It was because mm -hmm. the Jim Crow laws and all of that was embarrassing for uh, American public image. But even after they lifted that ban, there was still just a quota mm. of Asians who could get in. And the quota was Asians who were, it was like the smartest of the Asians, yeah. Asians who were engineers, doctors. So it wasn't like, so there so was that this, leads to this minority group that is incredibly successful. <laughs> that's already successful. So they were already, these immigrants were already successful by the time they came into mm -hmm. the U.S. But the American myth is that, oh, wait, Look at these immigrants. They're successful. Mm -hmm. And then they go to like, and then to black and brown people, they're like, why can't you be successful like eight, these Asian immigrants? And like, well, that doctor was already a doctor by the time he came <laughs> into the US. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and it, this is just the like, this is the insidiousness mm -hmm. of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It's not just in your face racism. It is this cunning yeah. <laughs> in which one group is put up against another yeah. while the dominant white power structure gets to laugh at all of us. Like it's, it, 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 is, it is crafty and sneaky. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is very sneaky. And it's still, and it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard to break down, but we're trying, I guess. We got yeah. to, we yeah. have to, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time in your career that you wrote about when you didn't want to write about race and now you really do what changed um i always actually i i could say my poetry books all have to do with race yeah but the way i dealt with it was not autobiographical it was mm -hmm. more surreal more fantastical i always used even though i was a poet i always used sort of these fictional personas but i think it was when i became a mother. Um, mm. You know, I had my daughter in 2014. I think that was a real pivotal moment, you know, where I thought I'm in a position of authority. I'm a, I'll have to be a role model to my daughter. And, you know, when I found out that I was going to have a girl, I was scared, I have to say, because really? I had a, I had a childhood, a bad childhood. You write about it. Oh, yeah. yeah, I write about it. I write <laughs> some of it. Yeah, but some of it, not all of okay. it. But, uh, and I was like, I don't, you know, and I was very, very insecure, you know, and it took me a long time to get over my insecurities. And I was like, I, I don't want my daughter to feel that way. I want her to be confident. I want her to feel comfortable in her skin. And so I was nervous for her. And 
And I think that was what sort of motivated me to write this book in a way that was actually very personal, autobiographical, mm. and mm. vulnerable. I've never written a book like that before. And it was yeah. quite scary for that reason. Um, yeah. Well, it worked. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. When we come back, Kathy Park Hong tells me how her own family history inspired minor feelings. Plus, how her parents see race very differently than she does. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Ancestry. This year, gather around the family tree with Ancestry. Give your loved ones an Ancestry gift membership to let them unwrap their history and discover the fascinating people in their past or surprise them with Ancestry DNA so they can uncover their origins. Ancestry's holiday sale is the perfect time to give a gift that connects them to family in new ways. So even if you can't all be under one roof this year, come together over your family story. Go to Ancestry.com NPR. Hey, listeners, before we get back to the show, I want to remind you real quick, if you love what you're hearing, if you love the journalism and interviews that you get from NPR, you can support public radio by giving to your local station. Just visit npr.org slash Sam. That is npr.org slash Sam. Give whatever you can. We appreciate you. Thanks. All right, back to the show. You know, you mentioned your family history. So much of this book is you unpacking that family history and what it was like for you as a kid and how uh-huh. your family got here, what it was like for you to grow up with immigrant parents. And you really do a good job of talking about the ways in which our racial history bumps up against and is connected to our very personal nuclear family histories. Uh-huh. And you unpack the ways in which generational trauma that families experience it can come from like just the nuclear family itself or from these larger bigger issues like colonialism Mm -hmm. how reading it i wondered how your relatives reading it took it do you think they were thinking about the childhood stories written down in that way the same way you were because, I mean, it, it's a lot for, I suppose, some relatives to read in this book about your family history. I don't think they read it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, uh, most of my relatives live in Korea. Thank God it's not translated into Korean. Um, and in fact, there was an offer. To, the Korean publisher offered to translate it. And I was talking to my mother and I was like, should I sign the contract? And she's like, I don't know if it's necessary for it to be translated. <laughs> she doesn't want to read it. <laughs> well, she doesn't, her English isn't very good. So I, I don't think she can read it. And this is one of the benefits of of being an immigrant's kid. <laughs> you know, the, the daughter of an immigrant who's a writer is that your parents can't understand your what you're writing. Um, How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel... Safe. I mean, I not safe. I feel like a, a relief that they can't read it, but um, okay. but I am also curious. You know what they yeah. would think. I'm curious what my father would think. You know, he asked me. He's like, "Are you going to say bad things about me? I bet you are, aren't you?" <laughs> Ooh, and, what did you say? I said, "No, Dad. It's just uh, you're going to be a sympathetic person in the book." And he didn't quite believe me, but he said, "Okay." But I told him how I was going to write about how he immigrated to the U.S. Now, uh, 
when I said that there was a quota, my father didn't meet the standards of getting a visa to the U.S. because he was not a doctor or an engineer, but mechanics were also allowed into this country as well. So he mm-hmm. lied uh, in his application and said he was a mechanic. Uh, so he managed to get a visa and come to the U.S. and he worked at a writer truck company in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I told him that and he, he just had this look of alarm in his face and he's like, oh no, I'm going to get deported. Mm. Mm. Thinking about the book and the way you talk about race and the way you connect it to trauma and family trauma, what do you think is the biggest difference between the way you see race and the way your parents see race, particularly y'all's race? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, My mother, for instance doesn't understand race in America, you know? Mm. She still Mm. sees herself, she doesn't even see herself as Asian American, you know, or even Asian. She considers herself Korean. She's Korean, you know, her nationality is Korean. And everyone else is an American. And for her, (laughs) when she means by American, also, but actually interestingly, when she says, oh, Americans are so selfish. She means she's thinking of white people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think there is a sense of indebtedness and gratitude for being here, you know, because she still sees herself as a foreigner. And and like that's what gave me a little pause in the book, because you write about all of the indignities your parents experienced. Yeah. How they were mistreated by racist pricks. And yet they still have this hopefulness and this belief in America, capital A. I don't know. I think they choose, you know, they're like, they do believe in this. Well, not anymore. They don't believe in it. I think my mother is totally disillusioned about America. I think my dad has a more complicated uh, idea of what America is. He's more aware of race Mm. than my mother is. You know, he, Mm. you know, when I was young, he would be like, if we were seated in the back of a plane, he would say, oh, it's because we're Asian. Or if we were not seated at a restaurant, first he would say oh it's because we're asian and i Mm. could tell that he probably faced a lot of discrimination as someone who is actually out there in the workforce uh doing business he probably faced a lot of discrimination that he will never tell me and in Mm. fact i didn't write this in the book but i'm going to tell you there's this one scene where (laughs) where i was um you know i was like 13 and my uh sister was around nine And we were, as we were coming out of the mall, there was this adult man and his wife, they were white, who came in. They let us out before they went in. I thought they were, he was holding the door open for us. But as he, before he closed the door, he yelled out, I don't open doors for chinks. But then afterwards, I told my father what happened. And he got so angry. And I thought Mm. he was going to start cussing out those white people. And Mm. instead... He said, why didn't you let them go first? Wow. And I said, what? They were like, why did you let them go first? And I said, dad, they called us. He called us a chink. And he said, you always have to let them go first. You always have to let them go first. And then he paused and he said, you can't trust them. You don't know what they'll say. Wow. Yeah. 
put that in the next edition. I will. <laughs> that needs to be in there. So, how, what do you think that says about him and how he thinks about race or thought about race in that moment? I think he just felt a lot of rage that it happened to us. But, you know, I think another big difference between my parent generation and our generation is that they're survivors. They're more about surviving. Mm. Like mm. they've been through war, you know? I mean, mm. my dad saw dead bodies, you know? Yeah. You know, um, when he was like a kid from the Korean War. I mean, they've been through a lot. And so for them, it's just racism in this that they faced is just an inconvenience. You know, it's what it's just another obstacle. Yes, they're hateful, awful people, but you got to just keep it in because mm-hmm. the only way to survive in this country and succeed in this country is to just get through it and forget whatever grievance you might have yeah. against these yeah. uh, white people. And um, Whereas your book is saying, I will not. I will name the grievances. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I will say, let's talk about the grievances. Because I'm petty and I will... <laughs> <laughs> I know every single person who's... <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about the way that your parents think about race. How Mm -hmm. do you think your daughter, what, she's six now, you said? How do you think she thinks about race, if at all? Well, she's she's six, so she doesn't really. And she's also mixed. She's half Asian, half white. So Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I mean, I think at this point, she's proud to be half Korean. Or she doesn't even say she's half Korean. She says, I'm Korean. And... Mm. That really warms my heart, you know, that she doesn't mm. even think twice about it, you know. And but I don't think she knows really knows what that means, you know. I think she mm. thinks, oh, Korean like grandma and grandpa, Korean like the food that I eat. But I don't think she really understands that she's never visited Korea. She doesn't have a deep understanding of what race is, and I'm. Yeah. I think it'll change. I don't know. I'm not saying it's going to change for the better. I'm just uh. saying it'll change in some way. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I yeah. don't even know if Asian American will be a, a category. It might be called something different, yeah. you know, oh when she's an adult. making up new terms because I, I, I can't keep up anymore. I, Let me can't tell keep, you. I can't keep up, but they're always <laughs> making up new terms and they're going to continue making up new terms. And so she might identify as something else when she's older. Yeah. We don't yeah. we don't know. We don't know. I don't we don't know. Yeah. You know, there were so many lines in this book that stopped me in my tracks. Either I stopped and said, mm, yes, or I just like paused, getting kind of emotional. And you, there was one line that you wrote that just is like etched on me now. You're talking about your daughter and how you're raising her in response to the trauma that you experienced as a kid, in response to the trauma your family experienced. And you wrote about your daughter, quote, I am not passing down happy memories of my own so much as I can stage happy memories for her. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful and also sad. And I just want to ask you to close how that's going. Yeah. You know, you make your own rituals, you make your own traditions. And uh, what happens, you know, I started writing that book when she was born and now she's six years old, is that I've read to her so many times or I've or given her baths or go and take her to the playground is that like we're making these memories they don't feel staged anymore it's just the experiences of my uh, daughter and me and now I think I want her to have these memories for when she's 
she's an adult, you know. Um, we're making our own rituals. We're making our own traditions in the way that my parents had to improvise and make traditions when they first moved here. And um, hopefully my uh, daughter will have happy memories when she's living in a bunker and there's during the apocalypse. I don't know. <laughs> Hey, well, thank you so much for this. Okay. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thanks again to Kathy Park Hong. Her book is called Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning. It came out earlier this year. I think you should read it. Okay, this episode was produced by Anjali Sastry and edited by Jordana Hokeman. Listeners, we're back in your feeds on Friday with a special episode. It's going to be a little bit different from our usual weekly wrap-ups of the news and such. For this Friday episode, we're going to hear from people young and old, ages 0 to 99, telling us how this pandemic has changed their lives. It's pretty powerful stuff. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. All right, listeners, till then, be good to yourselves. Stay safe. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.